I have no idea what it's like where you are, but here in sunny tropical Akron, Ohio, when I go to a store in about mm, July, they have the Halloween stuff already out. Then by about mm, mid-August, it's the rest of the holidays. The rest of the holidays for the rest of your life are lining the shelves in every single store, and they're already playing holiday music. It's too damn early for all of that merriment. I'm not ready to be merry. I'm not even ready to be spooky. But now spooky season's passed, and so now it is not too early to play holiday music. It's also not too early to start thinking about gifts. Whether it's for a friend or friends in your pants. Because you can make this season, this holiday season, very, very merry for the people in your life, including yourself, no judgments here, with Manscaped. Do your little drummer boy a favor and use the lawnmower 4.0 to avoid another silent night in the bedroom. Then add in Manscaped's top of the line shower products to have people thinking, all I want for Christmas is Yule. The copy says you. I said Yule. Senna cares about his sack. I care about your sack. Look nice when you get naughty by going to manscaped.com and use the code binge movies. Scream the code binge movies as you climax because it's directly responsible for your orgasms and free shipping and 20% off to the end of November. You have until the end of the month to clean and dress your hog. Get your hogs ready to get lucky this holiday season, courtesy of Binge Movies and our fine presenters of this very episode, Manscaped. Go to manscaped.com, use the promo code Binge Movies, free shipping, 20% off worldwide. I don't care what country you're in, I don't care what holiday you celebrate. Nobody wants a stinky hog in their face or in their mouth or anywhere near their fun zones. Give the gift of clean hogs at manscaped.com. Promo code binge movies. It's been a long time. So you think you're a 2000s kid. Okay, Al Gore. Get a load of this. It's the top grossing movies of the aughts. And this is the top 10 films of Y2K, 10 through 6. Can you answer these burning questions? Just how high does Millennium Force go? What the f is mad cow disease? I, what my reaction is that uh, free speech not only lives, it rocks. Is Richard Hatch still in prison? But I've got the million dollar check written already. I mean, I'm, I'm the winner. Because you still miss your Blackberry. Admit it. It's Binge Movies, 138. 
I'm here with Frankie from Red Cow Entertainment. Red Cow Arcade is one of the many YouTube channels uh, that he owns, operates, fills with content on the internet. He has his friends eat macaroni and cheese while he runs 5Ks. Uh, it's r- really incredible. Uh, I'm not here. I didn't invite you here for macaroni and cheese talk, although that can come up, right? Oh, I'm out. <laughs> I invited you here uh, because you have this really unique channel that is uh, not nostalgia, despite all the one-up arcades behind you. It's not uh, film reviews, despite film analysis. It seems to be you just taking this uh, r- this mind that you have for critical thought and applying it to uh, things that like the internet should care about, but you come at it from a completely different perspective. What is your channel? What do you do? And like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Why don't you <laughs> yeah. just do the easy cash in stuff? I know, right? Like top 10 things you can do with your Nintendo switch or something. Maybe, maybe that would work. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I'm a filmmaker, I think first and foremost, that's how I would, I would lead. Uh, yeah. But so I made like four features between uh, 2006 and 2014 uh, but after that, around 2015, I started doing YouTube and it was really, it was kind of like side slash middle content for like when we were between features, we, uh, we would do some podcasting or yeah. we would do web series. My friend, John was like, why don't we try this like comedy cooking show or we'll just try every single Mac and cheese we can. We thought we would shoot it on like iPhones. And then it turned because we're film students or, you know, or because we're, <laughs> we're filmmakers, it turned into this whole thing. And then when we started to get like a little bit of engagement, we started to kind of like have a lot of fun with the audience where like if Halloween came up, we would not just review, you know, a Halloween themed Mac and cheese. We would develop like an entire tales from the crypt episode. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Um, and I think like, e- even though our audience has always been small, we, we started to have people go like, Oh, there's like more here. These guys are just like, you know, it's not our, it's not our day jobs. So yeah. it's totally a passion thing. So we would just start talking about anything that interests us really. Uh, so yeah, whether it's shopping, whether it's, it's cooking reviews, and then eventually, um, it, really it was mostly a Patreon perk. Uh, one of my partners, EJ and I started podcasting where we really just, Hey, w- you know, what are we interested in? Mm-hmm. Uh, totally off the cuff. And then, you know, and that was like, like next to no views, but then we started talking about like, uh, Cinemassacre in particular, the angry video game nerd channel. And, uh, yeah, they were going through like this weird transition where he was kind of trying to outsource or trying to like get uh, it, it, like mechanize what he had been doing by himself for so many years. And it was like a really awkward transition for him. So we were just talking about that again, like to, to it, it, essentially an audience of people we thought were already like in with us yeah, from right. years of YouTube. <laughs> you know? And we shot it. You know, it was like, it was a recorded zoom. And that goes up and what, what happens for the first time ever we get like, you know, <laughs> 150,000 views. Right. I've got like a sweatshirt on. I've got like, like PJ shorts on. So I've got like these short shorts on EJ famously is sitting in front of uh, these shelves that aren't painted underneath. And so like that, that it's become to us the video where I'm wearing short shorts and he has unpainted shelves. And but are you wearing short shorts right now? Yeah, totally. <laughs> all right. That's all I'm here for. Now, what happened to the content you created where it was basically you and your wife and a couple of friends sitting on a couch in a makeshift garage watching movies, skirting content, uh, IP uh, copyright claims on YouTube? Are you talking about no views? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it, we we did that for a little while. So the, the conceit was 
I guess like, you know, in, in the tradition of mystery science theater, in the tradition of uh, red letter media's um, best of the worst, it was like, what's a new concept in that same tradition where you could review movies that, that aren't necessarily intended to be good and, and have these springboard conversations about them. And I said, well, what about like, you know, what, what are the statistics about like the number of hours of uploaded video on YouTube per day or something? It was like, there's just a tremendous amount of content on there. And it occurs to me, especially as somebody who comes from the narrative tradition, who now does basically all documentary blog, nonfiction stuff on YouTube, mm -hmm. that really nobody watches narrative on YouTube. Like nobody, no. like you go to a streaming service for that. Yeah. So I, th but I said, but surely there's a, there's millions and millions and millions of film school, uh, film students around the world. They must be uploading their, the, certainly to Vimeo. We all know that Vimeo is, yeah. is, yep. is you know, lousy with, uh, with student film projects. So I said, what would happen if we just searched for the lowest viewed narrative film projects? And then we just review them. I don't know. Try to offer some constructive criticism. If there is something to laugh at, like I'm not totally afraid of laughing at somebody, but, uh, but mo mostly it was, it was in the spirit of let's be constructive. And then we uh, haven't done it as much lately, but every Halloween we do it. So, you know, uh, uh, this past Halloween, we, we did like a, a horror marathon and sometimes you'll find really good stuff actually. <laughs> like they're, you yeah, know, deep, sure, I'm deep sure. in, in the valleys of Vimeo, there is some watchable stuff. Yeah. So where were you? We're roughly the same age. Where were you in the year 2000? Because of course we are here today, not to talk about your illustrious, illustrious career with Troma or YouTube or elsewhere or Vimeo or reviewing other people's illustrious careers on Vimeo or on YouTube. We're here to talk about the year 2000 with movies that uh, by and large, I feel like uh, maybe don't have the legacy we thought they were going to in the year 2000, I guess we could explore that in our conversations, mm. but where were you in the year 2000 and, uh, were you going to the movies? Because it seemed like, uh, these are the dying days of monoculture where people actually went to the theater. Yeah, totally. Uh, so I, you know, ironically the year, the year 2000 was, I think like when I became a filmmaker, I was 14. It was when I met my girlfriend who would become my wife. Mm. It's when, it's when I met John, who's the co-host on box Mac. Uh, he was, he, you know, he's like six years older. So then I was 14, he was 20. So actually he would take me to the movies all the time. And, um, it was like the first, probably when I was 14 was around the time that I, I was introduced to trauma. I was introduced to the concept that there were films outside of the, the 50 or so I owned on VHS. <laughs> like, yeah, right. That really is, is around that time. And, and actually my wife, who is not a film student, who is not a filmmaker, but has been there for the entire ride for, for our work. She was actually the one, like her family would rent all the time, like through the nineties mm. and right into the two thousands. So she actually, her film vocabulary was greater than mine. And I, I when I watched for, for this show, the five we're going to talk about today, I was, <laughs> I was like, these movies remind me of you, Nina, my wife. I was like, they were, they somehow they feel like you, they like, because you know, and, and I'm sure we're going to get deep into it, but it is remarkable how, to to timestamp how different the culture was just 22 short years ago. Oh yeah, yeah. What is was your wife currently? Is your wife currently possessed by a film student? Maybe you taught that you drowned. <laughs> we she she and I actually rewatched What Lies Beneath together. But she had seen it. I, this is my first time seeing it, and she uh, she's like, I've totally seen this movie before. Uh, yeah, she was like, she, she wanted to go for the ride with me on that one. And that was the one where you're like, this reminds me of you. 
<laughs> or it will. Or it will. <laughs> yeah. well, can I have a lock of your hair, by the way? Yeah. Right. Well, speaking of, I'm looking at my watch. I think it's about that time. I think it's time that we go back. Yes, 22 years in the past. It's hard to believe. Yes, millennials, you are old and you will die very soon. It's time to go back to the year 2000. We're talking about the top 10 highest grossing films on this episode, 10 through 6. If you weren't here for us for our 90s retrospectives of the top 10 grossing films, at that time we used the domestic box office, but heading into the new millennium, the worldwide box office became a much bigger influence on film and filmmaking. And so uh, it's actually easier now to go by the worldwide grosses. So for those of you in our worldwide audience who constantly DM and complain that these are domestic, these weren't the top 10 highest grossing movies of 1995. I've never even heard of that movie. Well, now we are going global because the box office went global. We're going to start with number 10, a Robert Zemeckis film that, boy, there's a lot going on here, and I can't wait to hear what Frankie has to say. Of course, I'm talking about 2000s, What Lies Beneath, which currently has a 47% on Rotten Tomatoes. He was the perfect husband until his one mistake. Did you know her? I had an affair with her. She threatened to kill herself. Followed them home. There's a ghost in my house. And now she's trying to hurt you. Stop it. Who do you think it is? I know exactly who it is. Harrison Ford. Tell me what to do. Michelle Pfeiffer. Something is happening. Where? <laughs> what lies beneath. Rated PG-13. All right, What Lies Beneath was directed by Robert Zemeckis with a screenplay by Clark Gregg with a story by Sarah Kernachan and Clark Gregg. It's triumph return of Michelle Pfeiffer lasting in the MCU. Folks, you're going to notice that this is a recurring trend for movies in the 2000s. And everybody who was a star in the 2000s is a guest star in a Marvel movie in the 2010s. So you're going to hear me say it again and again. It's also the triumph return of Harrison Ford last seen in Air Force One. It is the dubious return of my nemesis, James Remar, last seen in X-Men First Class. This, was, this film was released July 21st, 2000, on a budget of $100 million. It made $291.4 million. Milf amnesiac, rear windows, her neighbor gets possessed by a dead co-ed and survives a DILF attack in a Hitchcockian soap opera. Michelle Pfeiffer and her elderly husband attempt to kill one another after too many failed attempts to have sex. <laughs> yeah, this is a very horny movie, right? Uh, what's interesting, right, is the year 2000 gives us one in the, the bottom 10 and one in the top 10 Zemeckis film. I noticed that too. I, I, and it, and it, it, it occurred to me that like, if you look across the, all of the top 10, there's kind of a filmmaker's regime. Yes. You know, like there was a group of, you can start to see there was a group of people that were in charge of movies back then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And those people, those people are, are, have, to your point earlier about like guest stars and kind of gimmick cameos from the two that they've been very much sidelines. They're really very much not the regime anymore. Is this the end of Robert Zemeckis? I know he's continued making films, but this year, <laughs> 2000, he's got Castaway, uh, which obviously goes on to be nominated for Academy Awards and was a huge hit. Um, and he has this film, which is, you know, arguably a very big hit worldwide. Um, maybe not as critically lauded, but is this it for him as far as like one of the Kings of Hollywood, you think? And yeah, as well, a quality filmmaker? 
he starts doing all the mocap stuff not long after this. Like Polar Express, I want to say was like oh oh five maybe. Yeah, something like that. And, yeah. And then Beowulf, and then Christmas Carol, and yeah, he kind of like got lost in his own thing. Yeah, I think I think that's probably true. Unless um, like I, it was Contact before. I, I don't know. I don't remember. I think was, Contact is bef- is like ninety eight. Yeah. Yeah, because that that was still a big deal. But yeah, I mean, look, it, in the year two thousand, you know, Castaway is a massive film, film for Bob Zemeckis, and this movie not so much. And and I, you know, I noticed the reviews weren't great now or then, but boy, did it make money! And boy, would it not have made money today if you if you no. took two, you know, middle aged stars today and made like a kind of a murder thriller about their, you know, disastrous marriage spoilers by the way <laughs> oh yeah full spoilers yes you're welcome to full spoilers here in binge movies um it, it i don't think it'd make a dime well it probably wouldn't be made and if it is made right. it probably goes to netflix or amazon and it just comes and goes i think uh, here, here's what i think is interesting about zemeckis right is it's easy to like meme him as like a film nerd and be like oh well yeah from this point forward it was crap you know but the thing about it is if you really think about him, he is so involved in between Back to the Future, Back to the Future 2, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, in revolutionary film technology. He's involved in the creation of entirely brand new filming techniques or the advancement of filming techniques. I, I, would, add, I, I, I would add the the archival like JFK footage from Forrest Gump to that. Yes. Yeah. The, the guy, the guy was instrumental and, and I think he thought that the mocap stuff was going to kind of continue that trend. That's and, my point. If you're him, yeah. it's easy for us on the outside to be like, what the right. fuck is this guy doing? Right. But if you're him, it's paid off every time. That's mm-hmm. what you do. You push filmmaking forward kind of in the same way like Lucas did, right? Right around yeah. the same time where it's like, we look at those movies now, it's like all green screens, like what the fuck was this guy doing? All movies are pretty much made like that now, so it kind of turns out George was right. <laughs> well, it, when, when you were when you were watching this, were you th- like Phantom Menace was 1999? I'm yes. watching these films, and I'm you know, I'm, I'm I'm seeing visual effects that were state of the art at the time, and yet yeah. Phantom Menace was leagues beyond that. Yeah, and you know, like yeah, like this is the first time we've combined CG water with real ass water, right? Um, (laughs) But like Phantom Phantom Menace already had like a you know a a fully animated character, so yeah, even though the the CG doesn't always hold up for the prequels, they you can I'd say more so than Beowulf, (laughs) you you can you can very much see like the prequels influence on on modern special effects. Absolutely. And I think it's it's easier for us now to say like Zemeckis derailed his career in, in, in a sense. But if you look at like this point, 2000, he's got two of the top 10 highest grossing films. He's 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 done so much with split screen and combining, anim, you know, hand drawn animation with live action performers. And like you said, Forrest Gump, you know, Z, doing the Z-League thing, Z-League thing of putting people in, but kind of perfecting it for the time. And he's, he's just done so much and they've been huge hits with a lot of lasting cultural power. I, th- I think if I were him as a filmmaker, I would have gone down the exact same trail yeah. of like, Oh, well it's all going to be mocha. And he's not exactly wrong because the Lord of the Rings does it. Yeah. <laughs> the Planet yeah. of the Apes remakes do it. So he's, he's yeah. he, like, he, he like, I, he like took a left 
And it's not actually a complete wrong turn. It's just like kind of a wrong turn. The results like, execution was wrong. Yeah. The, the way he, he, he didn't accurately predict the way mocap would be integrated into storytelling. That's yeah, right. That's it. It seemed, it seemed like the direction he thought was important was, Oh, wow. Um, our best actors will no longer be constrained to the bodies they inhabit. Yeah. Um, we can we can have uh, uh, a fat guy play an in shape guy, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's yeah, kind of where 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 he went. Like I think he was thinking, how can we um, uh, mocap performance? How will that innovate performances as opposed to how will this innovate uh, uh, character work? Or well, I guess I guess that's a that's a kind of along the right lines. Yeah, so he he's off by like decimal degrees, and where yeah. it took him was the uncanny valley. Yeah, <laughs> and he's kind yeah. of been stuck there ever since. And really, is is you know again, like you said, not a cultural force anymore. When we get to this movie, though, this movie is definitely it's like um, it's strange. It's strange to me. It's strange for him to make this movie. What do you think he, he wanted to do? Did he want it? He just wanted to make his own Hitchcock movie. Yeah. Is that kind of, yeah. Like, like, but it's what the weird thing about it is it's sort of like, if you could somehow, which is just like iterations of iterations, if you could somehow mainstream De Palma, if you could make a baby boomer De Palma movie, <laughs> yeah, no, but, ma good. but mainstream it because it's, it's, I mean, there is a plot point in this movie, which is the next door neighbor is so dick dazed by James Remar. She can't take the orgasms they're too powerful that she's goes into hysteria for some reason the thing i remember him from the most is mortal Kombat annihilation <laughs> every time i see him i go is that is that the god of thunder by any chance as yeah as a first time watcher of this what do you make of it i didn't like it <laughs> <laughs> thought all it was, right i, thought, I mean I, by the way i let me just be clear i love zemeckis um, I, I think Roger Rabbit back to the future Forrest Gump, like gets you a pass for life basically. Yeah. Um, I, th this did come off as kind of a vanity project for him. I thought Harrison Ford was miscast. That was the thing that yes. leapt out at me the most. If, uh, there, there's a bit of an age gap there and I did feel it. I mean, she was 42 at the time he was 58. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I, I just hit like, he doesn't really carry with him. Uh, the kind of charm this character needed and the kind of malevolence this character needed. He didn't actually have, he didn't like, I don't think Harrison possesses either um, for this character. I, there, there's, there, you know, uh, probably like a Mel Gibson at the time <laughs> would have yeah, been oh yeah. yep. you know, somebody like somebody like that. But so th that, uh, but Michelle was very good. Michelle, no issues there. And I think that the, the infamous bathtub scene, is very effective and works really well. In some ways it feels like the whole movie kind of is for that bathtub scene. Yep. Um, there was kind of, you know, you'd expect it from an innovator, but uh, there was like face replacement CG and, you know, there was some kind of like two thousands pushing it uh, some camera motion too, which again was, is a theme I, I saw across all of these where they, they were trying to, to use CG camera motion in a way that it wasn't quite ready for. Yeah. Um, it was a little, little bit jarring. Um, but I do like, I, I like films of this genre. Typically I like the Rosemary's baby element of like, I know something's wrong. I don't yet know what's wrong and I'm being chronically gaslit by everybody around me. <laughs> uh, does this I, movie, 
Yeah. In 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 the wake of uh, maybe De Palma, maybe a little Italian horror, maybe a little Hitchcock. Uh, does it have too many plot beats? Because she's a woman who gave up her career as a concert cellist or violin player, whatever she is. Okay, that's background. Okay, that makes sense. She was in a car. like, And the thing is, this all is doled out over the course of over two hours. Yeah. So we don't even find out until like the midpoint of the movie. She's an empty nester. Her daughter's just left home. Right. We're made to believe that maybe she's having an emotional breakdown because she can't handle her daughter being away at college. She thinks the neighbor, it's a rear window situation. She, like I said, she thinks the neighbor is being murdered when actually she's just having orgasms that are too powerful, which is bizarre. <laughs> um, they all work at a university or something, but she doesn't, but they all live in the same kind of neighborhood. Then we find out she's an amnesiac. Then while, while all this is happening, we then also, she thinks the house is haunted. And she doesn't know by who or by what. And then at some point, she becomes possessed. She discovers her husband's affair. He admits to the affair, but, but says the girl killed herself when he broke the affair off. Then we realize that's the source of her. She found out about the affair and drove into a tree. And that's why she's saying, is there just too much shit in this movie? Too many yeah. twists, too many plot points that really don't add up. Yeah. And I, uh, so th then the question becomes, why are there? And I think maybe the the screenwriter thought that like we have to misdirect to all the way up to the third act, <laughs> and yeah, know, the third act is where everything happens. And so yeah, like we're 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 gonna feed the audience all this data to make them confused about what the real issue is, which yeah. I guess is kind of what the character is going through, which is like she's tr trying to understand, you know, like, am I a crazy person? Am I just an empty nester? Is it because there's been a lot of distance between my husband and I, um, but yeah, add to it, like his affairs and everything. And but before you know it, you're like, I'm, I'm losing the story in all the plot. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Right. And I, then going in that third act, all of those like red herring plot lines, they all just sort of end. And then, yeah. And then they all get wrapped up and you're like, oh, so everything was a diversion that added up to nothing. And the, the real story is it is a ghost story. The ghost is this girl that he killed and now he's going to try to kill his wife. And then it just goes into kind of straight 90s thriller territory, right. the supernatural element thrown on top. And it's like, uh, OK, and I, I like I basically uh, I agree 100 percent with what you're saying. It seems like somebody wrote a set piece for that bathtub scene. A doctor, a researcher, you know, shoots his wife up and paralyzes her and she's going to drown and she's going to be conscious of her drowning and she's going to be aware. And then they wrote the movie. They, they had a really killer set piece. And then they wrote the movie backwards to try to get to that set piece. And sometimes that works. In this case, I don't think it does. I think the only saving grace of the movie is Michelle Pfeiffer yeah. because I think she's always had this switch and we've talked about it on the podcast. She's always had this switch where she's able to turn on a kind of a malevolence, malevolent sexuality. Yeah. A dangerous sexuality. I mean, that's all of what Batman Returns is. Yeah, I was but say, she that, doesn't, that's Catwoman. Yeah, right. Yeah, but she does it in a lot of her, a lot of her work. And um, she does have like some comedic sensibilities and comedic chops as well. And so there's a couple of beats in here where it's like, even though it's a spooky thriller, her it's like, like her reaction to James Remar and the lady next door having sex and her face and her eyes. She's such a great 
facial actor because of those huge eyes that she has. And she's so expressive and it's, we get kind of bought into her character and, and her as a performer, it's just that everything else around her is like convoluted, mediocre, uh, and kind of boring and <laughs> doesn't add up to a whole much. Like I, I, it's, I think without her, this is, this movie's pretty, pretty abysmal but yeah, there's with her. Yeah. Yeah. There's, well, yeah, she's everything. She's the whole movie and she's the only part that comes together. And I don't, I don't feel like it was necessarily on the page. I think it literally is Michelle Pfeiffer kind of pulling this clunky plot along on her shoulders because she's a much better actress than I think she's given credit for, especially in this type of role. That's a great observation about her as an actress. There's a certain, like, she has a certain emotional credibility and maybe it is because of her, her eyes and her sort of facial expressions. And, and, and then also she has kind of a, like psychologically, I don't know if I trust her. So I sort of like I'm empathizing with her while I'm yes. watching, but I'm also like, yeah, but you might be crazy, you know? And so then the question is, well, if the, if the performance of Michelle is that good, like, do I need all this window dressing and all this writing? Exactly. Could, yeah. Like, could I, that's exactly could, it. Could, could you streamline the plot to be much more about like this, this marriage that is just not working. And so you th- actually think that you're, watching a movie about two people who can't connect, like focus more on that, cast somebody better in the, in the Harrison Ford role. And then eventually lead up to, no, no, no. It's actually much darker than it looks. You know, maybe that would be a way to, to repair it some, but yeah, at the end of the day, it it feels like it's all about that bathtub scene, (laughs) but I do like the bathtub scene. Yeah. So it's, it's a very effective tense scene. And again, the focus, right? The way the shot is framed is everything but her eyes is submerged. And the entire performance is in her eyes looking around. That's a good And point, so I think yeah. Zemeckis knew that. He knew that, okay, that's the money. It's not just that she has these beautiful eyes, because she does, but they're huge. And she's very good at emoting through them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like there's, to go back to Batman Returns, there's the scene where she meets Bruce and they're doing that Christmas shopping or whatever. And they're walking down the street and she like flips in and out of like this vulnerability, this spaciness and like this, she knows how to like tilt her head and kind of arch her brow enough that her these beautiful, very inviting eyes become sinister, you know, and like yeah. dark and like, you know, to the, a reductionist term for it would be like, she's crazy hot. Well, you know what I mean? Like she's, right. she's right. like, oh, there's something seductive about this. She's capable of appearing insane and seductive it's sort, at it's the sort same of like time. A- it's not common that you see like a Victoria's Secrets model as uh, an A-list celebrity actress. Um, yes. they're, they're, they're prototypically beautiful. Yes. But um, to, to get to that kind of that transcendent beauty that I think Michelle has, you, you have to have something a bit weird about you, something like yes. intriguing, intriguing about you. And she's, she's got that in spades. And yeah, it's, you know, it'd be interesting to talk to like an animator or an artist about like what's going on in her face that that's making us, it, right. it making human beings respond, you know? Well, she's got those pronounced high, sharp cheekbones, which I think adds a little bit of like, I don't trust this person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but she's got these inviting eyes and a gorgeous smile, but kind of these villainous eyebrows. Because we're all looking at the white, we're all looking at the whites in people's eyes. We're all, we're all yes. trying to figure out what everybody's up to. It's some, it's deep, deep in our biology and in our psychology. And, and when you have somebody who's, who, who's uh, uh, who you're deeply interested in, who's also yes. throwing you off. Well, 
that's that's almost storytelling in and of itself. That 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 puts you on the edge of your seat. So yeah, it's 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 kind of like the movie. There's too much movie there for. Um, I'd love to. I wonder if Michelle could could you know today still star in a film and and bring a lot of that to it. Or if I like, think so. uh, yeah, I, I I think she could. Mm. Um, I think you know like what, I, what the the key scene that is like pulls it all together is actually the possession scene when she's on the staircase and she's seducing Harrison Ford and she's dominating him. And because I'm just going to tell you, as I'm watching that scene, I'm like, there is this thing in the, the lizard part of your brain. It's like, I would love Michelle Pfeiffer to dominate me and look while well, she looks insane in the eyes. Yeah. But then it also it's scary. Right. Right. Yeah. But there's something demonic about it, obviously. Yes. That's what they're evoking. But yeah, the, this sort of like this temptation parable kind of thing. Go- yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, so there's good ideas here. It's not, it's not like, um, it's not just a big old piece of crap. It just doesn't really come together. It, it, it feels like, um, it's a little undercooked or something. It's somehow undercooked and overwritten at the same time. Yeah. 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 So, uh, you know, for me, I, I, I talked about it at length in another podcast for their Patreon. Um, so if you want to hear in-depth thoughts about <laughs> lies beneath, go to spoiler piece theater and look at their Patreon. Um, Why do you think it made a, 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 a you know, so the the box office for it was 300 close to 300 million dollars. Yeah, 300 million dollars. <laughs> yeah. And and domestic yeah. was about two, it was 155. It's a Why lot do of you money. think audiences at that time, you know, is it just like, hey, I know these two actresses and, or I know these two actors and I, uh, uh, you know, it looks like a somewhat interesting film. I mean, as we already pointed out, just nobody would come out for it today. Uh, no, I think because at that time our parents went to the movie theater and you think our parents were like hooked by this kind of thing? Like the, yes. the, the, the romance, the horror, the, yeah, the movie stars. stars. I think this was the era, probably the last, I don't, I don't even know that it lasts the entire decade. I guess we'll find out as I go through the decade. I think this is the last one of the last years where a list movie stars could actually open movies. But that, now that would be interesting is to actually pinpoint uh, the film, if you could, or at least the year when like yeah. the, 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 the conventional wisdom of like get a bankable star and you'll make $150 million. When did that end? You know? like, we're going to find out. <laughs> we're going to find out. <laughs> That's the mission. Because here's the thing, you know, there's two bankable stars. There's Sexiest Man Alive of the 90s, at least one of them. You know, you're right, though. It would have been better with Mel Gibson, yeah. the other Sexiest Man Alive. But you got Harrison Ford. And you've got the sexiest woman alive in kind of this pot boiler, like a rock semi erotic thriller. But at the same time, like, you know, yes, Harrison Ford's going down and Michelle Pfeiffer while they're listening to a couple next door fuck, but it's kind of clean. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's appropriate for your parents as you, as you said. Yeah. 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 I, I think it's a mom and dad date night movie, which a lot of theaters and a lot of studios were programming those types of movies because people were moms and dads were either going to the movies or they were renting these movies at blockbuster. Yeah. Um, and, and that generation, like, I don't want I don't want to say they aged out, but very much aged out of going to the movies. Yeah. They don't go to and the then, theaters, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then our generation, um, has been kind of, and you've talked about this on your YouTube channel has sort of been stuck in this cyclical over digestion of our own childhood over and over and over and over again. Yeah. 
Well, they didn't, you know, they, they've never made a movie for who we are as adults because who we are as adults is not negligibly different from who we were as children. Yeah, right. We're, we, we'll, <laughs> we'll always buy our childhood crap. That's for sure. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's um, it's an interesting. I mean, it's always a problem that studios have contended with, which is how do I sell you the familiar and how do I push forward? Like, yeah. and what's the you know, what's the easy money and what's the long term money? But uh, but back back then there seemed to be more latitude for it, and I I think the home video market probably helped bolster that as well. Yeah. Yep. If you had to give What Lies Beneath a score out of 10, what would you give it? And where does it rank for you for this week? Yeah, I, I gave it a four out of 10. So I didn't like the film, but I didn't think it was total junk, right? Yeah. And and that is uh, not the lowest. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> there, there's another film in here that I also gave a four out of 10, but I, I would rank it lower than What Lies Beneath. I think I know which one that is. Yes. Uh, so I give this one a five out of 10 and it is my number four for the week. It's also not the worst of the week for me. Oh, so we're, we're, you said five out of 10, five out of 10, yeah, four so out of five. We're, 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 we're pretty, we're pretty close. Yeah. yeah. Yep. All right. Well, it's time to move on to a movie I've already covered, which means for me, it's not eligible to be added to the short list, but Frankie could resurrect it and add it to the guest list, sending it to the very end of the season for Last Movie Standing. I can't. I've already eliminated it. And uh, after this, I never want to talk about it again. I'm talking about 2000's X-Men, which currently has an 82% on Rotten Tomatoes. This summer, welcome to the future. Prepare for the next generation of adventure. Fight with us. You sure you're on the right side? Trust a few. Beware the rest. X-Men. I actually go outside these things. What would you prefer? Yellow spandex? X-Men, of course, was directed by known and alleged pervert Brian Singer, with a screenplay by David Hayter, a story by Tom DeSanto and Brian Singer. It was released July 12, 2000 on Ellis Island and July 14, 2000 in the United States and a budget of $75 million. It made $296.3 million. The tragic tale of a patriotic U.S. Senator killed by an international cabal of genetic elites. I like it. Genetic elites. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have 20th Century Fox and Brian Singer establish a cast for the X-Men that would last 20 years. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. Uh, this is okay. A little history here. This is the third highest opening day of any film behind Star Wars Episode the One, Episode One, The Phantom Menace, and The Lost World Jurassic Park. It is the third highest Friday gross of all time to this day. Wow. It is the highest grossing opening weekend for a superhero film at that time, surpassing the previous title holder of Batman's Forever. And it is the only non-sequel in July release uh, to uh, it, well, it is the highest grossing non sequel in July release, surpassing Men in Black. Um, at the time, this was the sixth biggest opening weekend of all time. I, yeah. I saw this movie and I have no recollection, Frankie, of it being that big. Do you? Well, so I was 14 <laughs> and I remember going with all my friends and I remember being 
a huge fan of the animated series as were all my friends. Yep. And so this was, and I remember having a real media file on my computer of the trailer that was maybe like six frames a second. And, (laughs) (laughs) and I watched it and watched it and watched it. And I was pretty like, you know, I think the story of, of this first X-Men film for a lot of people is that was the first time a lot of people felt as though a comic property was adapted in a faithful enough way. Yes. And I, I definitely felt that way at the time. I was like, wow. And I, I remember thinking, I can't believe they never made an X-Men movie. <laughs> I remember thinking that at the, like, why did it take so long? How come I had to become a teenager? Why couldn't they have done this when I was a, uh, you know, a child and uh, watching the animated series. But, and then the, the, to me, the, the thing that becomes intriguing from there is they, they take lots of liberties with this film, yes. yep. you know, fr- from the source material. And I, I don't think people really mind it even retrospectively. And I don't remember anyone really minding it back then. At least that's my memory. I I'm right there with you. I don't remember the movie. I remember it being pot like a hit, but I don't remember it being a smash hit. If anything, I don't know if I'm just like transposing my feelings about the movie. When I dragged my father to the theater and said, I got to see this movie. Mm-hmm. I think if you're not us and you're not our age, it's hard to contextualize this. The nineties were the X-Men decade. Yeah. Between the action figures, which were incredibly popular, uh, most of the, the, and it's almost all, well, first of all, there's a legendary run of the X-Men in the 90s in the comic books. Right. But that's not even the thing that put it over the top. It was the television series. Yep. It, and, and you look back, it's a little janky now, but at the time, even more so than Batman the Animated Series, which was a superior show, but... X-Men with the, the the animated series was the first one to do kind of serialized adaptations of the comic book run, certain comic book runs. So they would do two part, three part, four part, five part, seven part episodes. And a lot of times, yeah, they'd have like standalone episodes, but there were times where there was character arcs across the entire season. And so it was, and then one season would feed into the next and they would plant seeds of story ideas. And so it was like, Kind of weird to say now, but it was kind of a mature oh, yeah. way of telling stories yeah. in an animated format. I, I and I was seven, and I could follow it. And, and, yes, and, I mean, <clears throat> let, let us not forget that in the pilot, you know, uh, an X man dies. <laughs> you know, yes, uh, of course they bring him back and stuff. But they, and yeah. then the second half of it is about how grief stricken the team is, how yep. they blame each other for the death that the, the terrible leadership led to the de- and and by the way, that death was born out of. Uh, discrimination and bigotry and that's all on front street. They don't hide that. You know, yes. so it's, it, it's pretty, when I was a kid, I was like, wow, this is, I mean, I, I guess much in the same way that, you know, when I watched Batman 89, I was like, Oh, you know, I, this is not Adam West. And, <clears throat> but yeah, X-Men even more. So I think the team element of it, the fact that there wasn't a particular main character, even though yep. uh, Wolverine was obviously a, a, a fan favorite, it was obvious to me as a child that he was not the main character. He was just a dynamic on a team. I think that was really appealing. And it kind of can follow this. And I think this is the challenge of the movies in a television series format, even animated, you know, the comic books are very uh, soap opera. The X-Men it's as much about the interpersonal relationships of the team and mutants with their parents and the parents who are evil or the parents who are good and the kids are evil and the uncle's evil, but the nephews are good. And you know what I'm saying? And 
um, a relationship between a mutant and non-mutant, not you know, discrimination and prejudice against the mutants. It's about like the society of that world, the government of that world, and all that. And I think in a serialized format, you can kind of cover all of that. Uh, and then, you know, ultimately, X-Men always, almost always climaxed in giant splash pages, especially in the 90s. These giant splash pages of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants versus the X-Men or the Savage Lands or Apocalypse or, you know, just... Cr- and so I, my thought has always been, and I've talked about this before, that I think the best adaptation is kind of what, uh, if Marvel had any sense, kind of what they're doing now, which is... An X-Men television show that led to an event movie is probably the best way to do it. Yeah. And they almost need to be, there's so many of them. (laughs) It almost kind of needs to be its own self. And I know they're not going to do it this way, but it could almost be its own universe within the multiverse, so to speak. Yeah. Like it doesn't culminate into anything until 10 years later or something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You'd almost repeat the phase one of the MCU just with the X-Men characters. Yeah, because you could do it. There's so much story there, and it's it's not really. I think the animated series got this. I think this movie tries to get at this, but I think it's really hard to do in a two hour film. It's really about the personalities and the. It's about the people, not so much the powers. Exactly. I think the concept of mutants adds a really, really nice dramatic bit of complexity to superheroes. Which is yes, this is a superhero team but there are mutants who are not superheroes. I, I actually remember <clears throat> again, when I was seven or eight, it was like a, I think it was like one of the first episodes in the, in the first season where there were like a bunch of bigots that were bullying this, this guy that just like, it was a mutant that just was hairy or something. Yeah. And, and he was like, I don't even have any superpowers. Like I just look different than you. And they were like, yeah, but we're going to stomp at it. And I, I, I remember being like, like really heartbroken seeing that. Yeah. And, uh, so, so, and also even just the idea that, that Xavier's school is a school first and foremost, again, yeah, yeah. The, the sort of the instructors kind of, you know, fight evil at nighttime. But, um, so yeah, most of the time, most of our, our MCU heroes, um, yeah, they might not have chosen becoming a superhero, but they're, they're, um, unambiguously a superhero. Yeah. And, whereas th- these are people who, um, who could just go their own way and it wouldn't be that weird, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, you're exactly right. And so I think that like, you know, movies are as much a reaction to other movies as they are their own expression, you know, like all pieces of culture are. And so I think in like 2000 general audiences were kind of used to a certain type of superhero film, which was essentially, you know, Superman's dead in the water. We're pretty much just getting Batman movies, but the late nineties, I guess we're getting some dark horse adaptations, the mask, um, we get to get we get a horrible steal. We get a terrible spawn. All of which yeah. we've covered. We've had some pulp attempts at reviving pulp characters like the Phantom and the Shadow. Uh, even earlier, the Rocketeer failed despite its quality. Um, and so it's like people. To, it's like almost as if people like didn't know how to make superhero movies. Like they hadn't figured it out really. It, it, isn't, it, much isn't, as, it tr- isn't it true that typically studios would go to filmmakers who didn't? Nec- you know, it's like. They, they didn't prioritize knowing or being a fan of the characters as That's like, it. That, you know, when interviewing them for the job. So they, it was like, Oh, get, get a splashy filmmaker or get one of our studio filmmakers to, yeah. It's like, do you think the spawn costume is interesting? Can you do anything? With 
<laughs> the exception, of course, is like Kevin Smith, who at this time is trying to get Superman lives off the ground, yeah. and it doesn't happen. But 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 again, you got the producer, you know, John Peters, who's Barbara Streisand's hairdresser <laughs> slash producer, who you know ends up taking ideas, his ideas for Superman, and making Wild Wild West out of them. So that shows you what their thinking was in the studios. Kevin may, have, um, Kevin may have been one of the first, <clears throat> you know, film like studio filmmakers who advertised the fact that he was a big comic book fan. That, and I think that's the other thing is there's now it's like, well, you know, every, you know, you do make one little indie that's like kind of critically lauded. And the next thing you know, you got a $400 million Marvel yeah, movie, yeah, you know, right. and you're like, Oh shit. And it's all, all, everything's been done in previs and, and then they'll change it in post viz. And then you're just act, you're just having people, you're capturing single performances in, in a Manhattan beach studio on a, on a empty warehouse. And then you're just like half-ass chroma keying everybody. Into the That's the thing is I, I, I get the, imp- <laughs> I get the impression that those Sundance filmmakers who get hired to do Marvel <laughs> films, I think they're shooting the dialogue scenes almost the, the, the one that comes to mind is in black widow, the, the sort of family scene at the table, yeah. which is the best scene in the movie. Yes, I, like I'm. I'm certain that the director directed that scene, and then the rest of the movie feels a bit like Marvel constructed it. You know, yes. and so yep. they 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 got it. Maybe maybe the director guild needs to get on top of this thing. <laughs> and we're all this like preamble that we're going through is all to get to this, which is mm-hmm. this is the first film of the superhero world. Like you were kind of saying that it has a lot that it has to do. First of all, it has to explain mutants. It has to explain their world. And it has to bring the X-Men to the general population whose most recent superhero movies were Mystery Men and Blade. Now, nothing against Blade, but, you know, there's there's a camp factor, you know, especially Mystery Men's like a parody. Um, so it's, you're, you're having to like convince general audiences to take this world and these characters serious and explain it to them while also keeping their attention with action sequences while also like introducing 13 different characters and their relationships to each other. And it's like, there's a lot going on here. And despite whatever you want to say about Brian Singer as a human being and a filmmaker, I think that he does a better job at this time than probably anybody else would have been capable of. And did you notice that the runtime was an hour 45? Which is kind of insane. I mean, the amount of crap they cram into this is insane. Yeah. And I mean, nowadays, you know, it's very typical. Like it's, it's pretty atypical that a superhero film, like the, a tentpole superhero film is under two hours. I oh, think. today this movie would be like two twenty. Right. Two twenty. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Um, really what he's done is he sort of, again, it's like you're giving praise to a, to a demon, but you're, <laughs> he's elevated, he elevated what it was to, to direct a superhero film. This is elevated direction. Yeah. Well, like they, they got the usual suspects guy, I know <laughs> to, to do to do an X-Men film. I wonder, I, you know, I, I remember watching behind the scenes, but I, I never got a sense for like, was he, he must've been excited to do an X-Men film. And of course it, it, I remember he always said, well, kind of his way in is, um, is like gay rights. He's yes. like, Oh, is, is this a way that I could tell a story that matters to me? And, and, and when it comes to this material, it's a pretty good fit, you know? It, oh, it's a perfect fit. Yeah. 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 I, I I, I think that I'm, I'm like, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm very mixed on the movie because obviously to it, to me, and I think to most people, the strongest part of the movie 
is the casting of Hugh Jackman. And he's not what we would have necessarily expected for Wolverine to be in 2000. He's like yep. kind of too tall, kind of too lean. Right. But yet somehow he does embody the character. Like when he's in the set piece where he's like sniffing, which they kind of dropped and he never does again. But yeah, like, yeah. You know, and it's like, that's like straight out of the cartoon, right? Like, right. You know, you put us like you put a leather jacket on the guy, you put a cigar in his mouth, give him the weird fucking haircut. And he can do this animalistic thing that Wolverine has. We wouldn't get the fullness of it until Logan, where we get the berserker rage deal. Um, so good. It's so good. You know, you're like, <laughs> you got this Broadway dancer guy that's very, but it's like he, he did it. And even like, even the casting of like, could you have picked a better storm in 2000 and Halle Berry? Yeah. Right. Right. And James and, and, Marsden and, and is Cyclops. James Marsden is kind of bland. Like Cyclops, like yeah. he kind of fits. It, it's funny. Halle Berry, I think more than anybody in this film, probably catches shit because there's some fake. Oh, they give her terrible and dialogue. And yeah, and she's got the silver, like Spirit Halloween wig and stuff. But, but you're right. And like that, she she is spot on casting for that point in time. Yeah. yeah. But uh, to, me, to, to me, the three, the one that's like, oh, you know, because if if you just got Hugh Jackman, that might be enough. But like Hugh Jackman. Patrick Stewart in yes. film is like, okay, yes. now we, now we have something that might last a long time. And that's what happened. I remember watching star Trek, the next generation, you know, my dad forcing me to watch it and in syndication. And, I, and the whole time I, I had these conversations with my dad of like, if they ever make an X-Men movie, he he's Charles Xavier. I think everybody he, thought that. I, in fact, yeah. I remember there, there was, there was a X-Men meet <laughs> star Trek, the next generation book that that had like <laughs> Xavier and Patrick before this movie came out. I remember a, wow. a friend had it and I remember just being like, so are, are they just both played by Patrick Stewart? <laughs> <laughs> it's the most obvious casting in the world, but it's yeah. perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It's perfect casting. And so I, I think what you really have here is you have a, they've gotten certain core elements of the story, the characters, the world, right. But it almost feels like a rough draft for an X-Men movie that they never quite made. Yeah, that's true. Like you, like, you, you, you end up seeing all of the elements of, of a, an X-Men movie that should get made across time. Yes. You know, I, I, I yes. often say, I often say like, uh, there's, there's, a, you know, you could do like a machete, a machete watch order thing for, for my money. It would be, you start with first class, just let first class be your intro into the X-Men world. And then I would go to X2 and then I would do Days of Future Past, and then I would do Logan, and then I would call it a night. I think I would. Pro I think most people would agree with you. I think I would too. Yeah. Yeah. I love. I like Days of Future Past. That's the one that to me feels like the most X Meny. Like, oh, this is what the, this is what reading the comic book felt like. Yeah, I, I think it's lovely, and it's it's Singer again, man. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. You can't and be I denied. Of course, Logan, but Logan almost feels Logan feels like a standalone yeah. thing, and. I, it's very good, but it's it but it's feels not like X-Men. Yeah. It's not X-Men. Yeah. Right. And and they're even playing with the continuity a little bit where he's like, Oh, your adventures, because they have the comic books, and he's like, it's not always like you read in the comic books. Like some of it was true, some of it wasn't. So they're like kind of fucking around with the right. like, yeah, maybe those movies you saw kind of count. Maybe this is a different Logan. Yeah, whatever. it reserves the right to deny those films. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, yeah. Take it however you want to take it and get yeah. off our fucking back. <laughs> But yeah, this you're exactly right. The whole series kind of feels like like a bunch of drafts. 
yeah. script drafts for the the perfect X-Men movie, the ultimate X-Men film that was never made. That never quite <laughs> exists. Yeah, it right. doesn't quite exist. Yeah. And there's enough here to like. Um, I, I, I think I think the problem is there's a little bit too many plot threads and it can't decide who are who is the character who's going to be our entree into this world. Mm-hmm. Because it gives us Rogue, and we kind of think it's going to be Rogue, and then she disappears, and and then just becomes a MacGuffin at the end of the movie, like the the plot device. Yeah, and then it actually is that's Logan. That's right. Yep. And then you're like, but Logan, and I will. I, 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 I hate to do it, but the introduction of Logan, where he's like cast in shadow in a dive bar in Canada, being a shit out of guys, and then like he kind of like comes out of the shadow and like lights his fucking cigar. You know, and then bellies up to the bar. It's like that's perfect. It's like yeah. straight ripped out of a panel. That's ex- that's exactly right. And it's it, it it's very western. It's very yes, yeah, right. It's it's yeah, it's great. It's, he's like a he's, he's a yeah. gunslinger. Yeah, he's, yeah, right. Well, I, you know, I I've I'm, at the time, of course, I was like, uh, why is Rogue Jubilee or why is Rogue yes. Pride? And and it, but of course, in retrospect, I'm like, you know what? If you're trying to be economic with your characters even though some people might feel betrayed by never getting the rogue that was so great in the comics and in the show. But I do really like that, that I can't touch anybody. I can't connect with anybody. Yeah. It's an adolescence nightmare. Yep. Um, and that she would find herself with the most unlikely of mentors in Logan, who also is in his own hell. So yes. I actually do think that that pairing is the heart of the film. And even though she kind of gets damseled at the end, which I think is a shame. Um, I think, I think it works. And then of course, for a villain, you have a villain who Magneto is one of the great comic book villains because he, he, he has a point, you know, it's that whole thing. Um, and will you choose to open your comic book movie with the Holocaust? But that's the big, yeah, maybe we should have led with that, which is like, that sets the tone of this is not what you're used to. Right. Right. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's like, insane, and 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 the agony of that character too, like ripping a gate apart with his. Yeah, it, it is a hell of a way into a movie. It really is, and yeah. I agree with you. Like, I understand why they did it. Right, mm-hmm. uh, the the if we're going to introduce the school of gifted students, gifted children, then you kind of need a teenage character, and Rogue was a popular character. And you're right, her abilities, her powers, her inability to touch and whatever without potentially killing somebody. It kind of goes into, like you said, adolescence, puberty, fears about sexuality, yada, 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 rooting that into a female character, a teenage character, and then kind of letting us see the student body life. You know, Logan, his plot line gets us to see like the special forces mutant team, X-Men, and then Rogan's Rogue's storyline kind of gets us to see the the, the school, the school storyline. Yeah. But then it just, they just, I mean, maybe there was more, but they just sort of drop it. Oh, well, the other piece though, is that the, the whole, like, we're going to make more mutants thing. They need rogues power to do that. Yes. So that kind of, she also serves a plot mechanic thing. Yeah. But I, I think the story, her, her, her story stops at a certain point and she just becomes a plot function. Yeah. And right. And her power. Does too. Yeah. I, yeah. You feel it in the movie and she like just fucking disappears. And then she's then all of a sudden appears again. And it's, and it's just, it's a matter of, we got a lot of fucking story, a lot of characters, a lot of world that we have to build and we can't serve all. And we're trying to do it economically in an hour and 45. So 
I, I think this movie has the same problem that a lot of Brian Singer films have, especially the ones that he writes, which is there's something sort of cold in his dialogue, almost inhuman. A little stiff. And a little stiff. And then I think when you realize that he's allegedly maybe a psychopath or sociopath, <laughs> it's like this guy doesn't know how to write like humans. Yeah. 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 And you know what? He, I always thought he came off really awkward in the behind the scenes stuff. Like he seemed a little bit sort of plastic himself. Yes. Uh, it, both in look and in the way, like I, I, I remember thinking like, is he joking around with people or is he being there in particular? There's, there's a uh, Superman returns documentary where he's like kind of like, like an anxious mess the whole time. Yeah. And he seems really difficult to work with. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he seems like a very like emotionally stilted human being. Yeah. And when you're writing about the X-Men, there's a lot of emotion in X-Men characters and comic books because they're all kind of tortured souls. Right. Who are, who are all trying to figure out how to deal with this thing that that it puts a social stigma on them, right? And um so I think that's kind of one of the missing ingredients here is like, yeah, we're seeing like, you know, it almost kind of works with Logan because Logan is, is sort of blocked from his own emotions and he's, he's the man with no name. He's heavily inspired by Clint Eastwood and right. those sort of, you know, even the comic books, he's from that era, you know, when those spaghetti Westerns were being made and that's kind of part of his conception. So it kind of works with him, but all these other characters, like you gotta, we gotta feel something for somebody here. And we don't. And I think that, that the movie suffers because of it. And um, I think the special effects weren't great in 2000. I was ultimately in 2000 underwhelmed by the movie. I have grown to appreciate what it's attempting to do more in its place in history more. I am still underwhelmed by the movie because I still think these characters work better in a serialized format. That's a hill I will die on as a nerd. Yeah, but look, uh, I, I've, I, this is not a movie that I, I'm like, I'd like to pop in X-Men 2000. Like it, it, it somehow there's some, like something about it that doesn't really, especially when I have other X-Men films I could be watching that, yeah. that, that do offer a lot more in the way of the characters and the, and ultimately are more serialized. Um, so like the nicest thing to say about it. Yeah. It's more, it's more about its historical place. It's more about this film got it done. Yeah. Where, where other films hadn't gotten it done. It, it, it kind of, it's legacy is more about what would, come after it than it's the film itself really and it, it, i don't know about you was this the first film it's the first film i became aware of where i was like why the fuck is everything so blue and silver yes <laughs> and later you know by yeah. the time you get to 2010 or something every, everything is orange and teal but you know these color grading uh trends but i remember being like it is rather blue isn't it i i think the first one was the matrix 99 where i'm like before he gets out right and everything's kind of like blue and then when he goes back in everything's green and i'm like okay like, but that kind of makes obviously makes sense in that world and thematically fits yeah um but yeah this one i was like this feels like somebody saw the matrix and color graded it oh, <laughs> but yeah, there's no reason for that because this is an x-men movie why is everything so blue yeah if there's something that comes to my mind where i'm like nah i don't want to watch that movie it's it's the statue of liberty se sequence oh I, I just think of it and i'm like no i don't want to watch that fucking movie and the cg is a really mixed bag around that point now granted there's there, i think there's some really good cg like the claws look quite good especially if you want to compare them to you know x-men origins or something but yeah. um and and the mystique design is like uh, iconic now. I mean, they, like they kept that thing 
you know, to the bitter end. And, and I, I remember Mystique was, a, was probably because of the, the erotic factor and stuff, but she was a really big piece of the marketing and, and I think works quite well in the movie yeah. for what it is. But, but that statue, you know, the, uh, some of those shots of like Wolverine, I don't know, like spinning. <laughs> yeah. I just didn't want any of that. <laughs> well, I remember sitting in the theater watching it for the first time. And when he did the spin around, like the crown, yeah. I cringed in. Yeah. I was like, Oh no, <laughs> this is awful. It's embarrassing. Yeah. And, and I just and, remember. And, and doing it like on at the Statue of Liberty or, you know, I mean, I granted like Superman two is at the Eiffel tower and stuff, but there's just something very kind of rote about like, are we really going to go to like a, you know, a, a Vegas landmark you know, for, for <laughs> our third act? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So for me, I mean, I've, I don't know what I've graded this in the past. This watch, I'd give it like a 6.5 out of 10. It's just, it's, middling i think it's a middling film yeah. uh, of the five films that we watched this week it does fall in my number two spot <laughs> holy shit yeah so i gave it a, se- a seven out of ten and okay. it's also also in my number two spot okay all right well let's move on to a first time complete watch of a dad movie for me i've seen it chopped and screwed on tnt for 22 years of course i'm talking about the perfect storm which currently has a 46% on Rotten Tomatoes. We're going back out. Between job and family. You're going away again? Between land and ocean. I got a woman I can't stand to be away from. Between fate and courage. These storms have collided. Lies the biggest storm in recorded history. If they can't get to us, we'll get to them. The perfect storm. Rated PG-13. Starts Friday, June 30th. Wow. This film was directed by the late, great Wolfgang Peterson with a screenplay by William D. Whitliff. It's based on The Perfect Storm by Sebastian Younger. It's a triumph return of George Clooney, last seen in From Dust Till Dawn. It's a triumph return of Mark Wahlberg, last seen in whatever rapey Transformers movie he was in. It's a triumph return of Diane Lane, last heard in Inside Out. It's a triumph return of Karen Allen, last seen in Starman. The Triumph Return of Mary Elizabeth, Master Antonio, last seen in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. It's the Triumph Return of John C. Riley, last seen in Guardians of the Galaxy. It's the Triumph Return of Bob Gunton, last seen in Shawshank Redemption. And is the triumphant return of our patron saint, one of our pantheon, Sir Michael Ironside, last mm. seen in Scanners. Yeah. This film was released July 30th, 2000, a budget of $120 million. It made $328.7 million. Cash-strapped commercial fishermen dare fate and mother nature during the storm of the century. I have. Wreck-It Ralph, Batman, and the guy from Transformers lose the battle of their lives to a rogue wave. Everything you said is really depressing because you're like, here's all these IPs that they were associated with. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, back then you could just be George Clooney and that would yes. make some money. Yeah, right. Um, um D- I, Diane Lane is the great movie love of my life. Yeah, you love her. But her accent and her performance in this movie is egregious. Dude, I ha- I I have a <laughs> a note I'm staring at right now that says Diane Lane's accent is a bit much. <laughs> Jesus, man. It's like an SNL sketch character. Now, do you know where I'm from? I'm I'm from this exact area. Are um, you really? Yeah. So I, you know, I'm an East Coaster. My dad was a sword fisherman uh, wow. for a long time. Yeah. And he knew something. He didn't know, I think, the, the particular people 
who died here, but he, he is part of that tapestry in a big way. And I remember it, it, in this area, it was, I think much like, um, whenever there's a movie made about a region or about like a people, you know, it's like, it's like big news in that yeah, area. Yep. So this, this movie I think was kind of big news anyhow, because there was a, a special effects story to be told. There of course was, it was a George Clooney vehicle. It was a biopic, but, um, around here it was on the news like constantly it was like wow. everybody had read it and everybody was going to run out and see the movie uh like gloucester sword fisherman oh yeah and i gotta tell you like uh, you know until here, here's like my really quick review of the whole film basically i think that the, it's a really strong first act it really sets up the characters really nicely and uh, uh it, you know despite the fact there's some kind of tropey dramatics in it but i'm okay with that sort of thing it, it is a movie you know and um and then and i thought like a lot of the details about their profession and about the kinds of people they are where they would be and what they'd be wearing and the production design it's all really pretty immaculate um and and at some point in the storm itself i i my eyes start to cross with the kind of you know i'm, I'm i i feel like i'm getting splashed nonstop, and i i just kind of check out a little bit but um, I, I also, you know, this is not the only film of our five that have a James Horner score in it. The late great. James I know. Horner. Yeah. Um, and, and boy, does, do they go for it? Like in a way that and I noticed all of the, all five of these films anyway, they all are not afraid of their musical scores the way that sometimes films are now. Well, that brings me to my note where I'm like, this movie is wallpapered with score. Yeah. And, I, and then I'm like, it hit me and I'm like, oh shit, movies used to have movie scores yeah, yeah, and the movie really score used to be prominent in the film. Right. Right. I think, okay, this is my first time watching it all the way through. And, and I'd love to delve into more of your thoughts. Uh, the universe has conspired here favorably since you're <laughs> from the area, but um, this is my first time watching all the way through. I've seen it bits and pieces. To me, this is like a definitive dad movie, you know? Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, uh, I... I don't know if this is on purpose. If it's on purpose, it's genius. If it's not on purpose, it's schmaltz. And either way, I think it's okay. Clooney's casting and the lines that they give him and his performance and the James Horner score, it all feels like a almost like a 1950s studio film. There's even a scene where they're on the boat and you can clearly tell that they're on a soundstage yeah. because the sunset behind them, the, 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 <laughs> the, the, the line, you know what I mean? The horizon is just like a wall, like in the Truman oh, yeah. show. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only shot that looks like that in the whole movie. And the score actually like the whole time feels like an old Hollywood score. It's sort of big and bombastic and has all these like classical kind of notes to it. And I'm sitting there and I'm going, and his per, his performance that he's delivering and the trajectory of the movie is, this is a movie about hero fishermen who, despite the odds, press through the storm and make it to the other side by nothing but gut and intuition. And of course, because this is based on real events, in the end, they die, right? They do not make it. But the whole movie is building as if these guys are going to make it. They're yeah. going to, despite the odds, through hell or high water, by God, John Wayne's going to get them through the storm. Maybe they'll, lose one, maybe they'll lose one of them, you know, or something. Yes. Yeah. And that's what Clooney's playing. Clooney is playing 
an old Hollywood, you know, not quite John Wayne. Cause he's always, you know, people compare him to like Clark Gable or Gary Cooper or one of these guys. Yeah. But totally. he's, he's playing that old Hollywood. And I, and it's like, okay, was he cast? Because that's what he invokes was the score written. And is the whole thing either from the screenplay level or from Peterson's direction intentionally shaped like an old Hollywood heroic. They're going to, they're going to make it movie so that that the reveal that they do not make it is that much more heartbreaking. Are we trying to trick the audience in a sense of being like, Oh, they might make it or is it just schmaltz? And that's, and that's it, such a good they, point. They didn't know tonally what they were doing. <laughs> Yeah, because if well, they I, knew what they were doing and they were in control of it, they did a hell of a job. Because the whole thing is a subversion of old Hollywood. I, I have a theory about what happened, and unfortunately, it's it's not as intelligent as any of that. But I, I yeah, I think it, I I also registered that subconsciously while watching. Like I know how things ended up historically, yeah. and yet I'm watching it going like they're going to make it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and and it's funny because obviously you wouldn't want to. Uh, spoil a thing like that for the audience that should be the tension of watching the entire film is will they or won't they and yeah. yet everything that signified from the score to the performance to even the setup of each character like you're not going to let john c Riley not see that little boy that he spoke to at the beginning right. Of the movie, right that would be totally way too tragic for the kind of film that this is for the way everything is framed um you know, most films, if they're going to have that tragic of an ending, they want to let the audience in on it a little bit. So a little bit, it's not just devastating. Um, but I think what happened was, I think that the, the, the production was very much in contact with these families and the families of the people Mm. who died. And I think that they were really enmeshed in the culture and the people who like, I think like, cause this was 1991, they made this movie in 2000. So I think this was still a really, really fresh, um, uh, cultural event. And I think that they were like, one of their priorities was to do right and be really respectful to the characters to the point of romanticizing them ridiculously, like, and being like, you know, kind of erring on the side of schmaltzy, um, mm-hmm. to really like pick these people up. And yeah, so much so that, that an, an audience member who doesn't really know the story might be like, what happened? They died in the end after all that, you know? And, but you're right. It's very old Hollywood. It's very yeah, like Mark Wahlberg being like, "Hey, but Cap, we put up a hell of a fight, didn't we?" That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. Like his whole character is 100 percent a sidekick character from a 1950 studio. It's like, oh, but by God, Cap, you're the you're the best Cap I've ever crewed with, and yeah, and we're gonna make it straight to sun, straight to the uh, sunrise. We're gonna get through, you know. And it's yeah. just like, holy shit! Like this is this is. 100% like a 50s character. Gee Willikers, you know? It's, that's the that's what he's bringing to it, you know? And I remember like, Wal- Wahlberg said that he spent a ton of time with the family of the character he played. And, like, it was very important to him that he was yeah. respectful to the person. So, yeah, I, I think... I think that they were... They were they overcorrected. They were overly conscious of, like, we don't want to just kill the fuck out of these guys, you know? Does <laughs> that accidentally, have- though, make the movie better? Yeah, because ultimately it, it there's this massive subversion, right? Yeah, it's a good point. Because a movie like this could potentially be made today, like a true event, bio, biopic, you know, whatever, uh, tragedy. But I think if it was written today, I think they would tip their hand a hell of a lot more up front of like, all these people are going to die. Right. You'd almost go into it knowing like this is a feel-bad film. Like, yeah. We're going to watch these guys suffer and die. And that would almost be like, they would market it as like, you're going to watch guys suffer and die 
for like two hours, <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. and barely and almost make it and almost get rescued, but they're not going to. And you're going to feel every heroin emotion that they felt on that boat. And it's, it, and I think we're still in this weird, that nineties era. Cause we're, you know, two thousands is like, just cause the calendar changed. These are all nineties movies. Yeah. This is cultural hangover shit. Yep. I think we're still in that nineties studio thing where it's like, uh, and you're right. If they did get really, and it's, you know, from production to release and from this happening 91, very short window of time. Um, and you're going to be embedded in that community and actually try to involve them. It just makes me wonder if somewhere along the way, either in the edit or maybe it was Horner himself was like, because he saw the footage coming in and the cut and it was such a romanticized view of it. He's got to give it this romanticized score. Yeah. And that immediately creates that old Hollywood feel. Yeah. I I just wondered to what degree was it like kismet and what degree was it? Somebody somewhere along the way was like, well, shit, this is, we just made a fucking Gary Cooper steamboat Willie movie. Like we got (laughs) to, we got to embrace that. Yeah. Maybe it may be one of the last like that. It, 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 it's, it's, you know, I think if I had watched it in 2007 or something, I'd be like, oh man, remember how schmaltzy fucking movies were? Yes. But now it's that we've been separated from that kind of, um, that earnestness for long enough. It's, it's, it's sort of like, well, yeah, but, but some stories are about heroes and some stories are about people who, who we've lost and, and maybe we can remember them in a romantic way. Maybe that's, you know, (laughs) I think we have an instinct to like, you know, when, when you, anytime you depict something with rose colored glasses, it feels insincere or, or dishonest. It's like, well, it's not emotionally dishonest if the people involved like wanted to make this movie, you know, It's, it's, it's an interesting problem. That's a, it is, it's a, it's a, you know, I went into it definitely with that feeling of like, cause again, I hadn't seen it all the way through. I'd seen bits and pieces of it through the years and I'm like, Oh God, you know, uh, <laughs> I wanted to sit yeah. through this, and, yeah. but I feel I, this is old man speak, but like, they don't make them like this anymore. They, no. they don't, they just don't, uh, this, like I said, this story might be made, but it wouldn't be made like this. And but you for me, yeah. yeah the roguish charm of Clooney and then the fact that it, it doesn't, doesn't lead to overcoming that every, every time they overcome one death scenario, it just leads them to a worse scenario until they are dead. And he just goes down with the ship. Uh, I think that's like, it's pretty, pretty bleak and it's pretty bleak for a mainstream blockbuster. Like that's, that's really bleak. Yeah. And, I, I- um, I actually yeah. wonder, I wonder if, if they did it kind of along these lines today, maybe it would make a bunch of money. You know, if, if Top Gun Maverick showed us nothing, mm. like may, maybe you could start to do a little more of this, you know, and, and, and the, uh, the older set would come out for it. <laughs> you know? I mean, we're the older set now. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, the, right, so the question is, uh, yeah, with, with, with the dads our age, uh, go for the small <laughs> Or are we too fucking jaded? Because we are, you know, pretty, yes. you know, we're very, we've, we're, we're so overly media literate that we're like, we see through, um, we see through this sort of thing really quickly. And that, you know, that's the challenge I think for storytellers is like, well, how, how do you, um, how do you take a cynical generation and, and at least occasionally deliver them something that's maybe overly sincere? <laughs> yeah. I, 
here's the thing as a cynical generation movie podcaster guy on the internet, uh, maybe it was the throwback. Maybe it's nostalgia. It worked for me. Uh, I give this a 7.5 out of 10. Uh, not the world's best score, but I think of the five films we watched this week, I think it's, I think it's the best. It's my number one. Wow. Yeah. So I, I gave it a seven out of 10 and it was my, uh, what, what, third. Yeah. Third. There's two. I like X-Men and another film better. Okay. But, but I, I like, yeah, I'm on the side of like, I liked it. I, I, uh, I was like walking around for a week telling people about the perfect storm. I'll, 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 I'll confess. I went into, when I saw the list, I was like, man, this, this, this might be a slog. And then I was really grateful for the experience of watching, like just dedicating some of my time and attention to thinking about where film culture has gone in, in 22 short years. It's, it's really been educational and helpful for me. It, 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 you, you've got a good thing going here, Jason, with this concept. It, it makes me think like, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do this with 95. Maybe I'll do this with 05. Like, it, you know, just, just to, you know, what, what, what was competing for people's attention and what was, what was succeeding in grabbing their attention? Well, let's move on to a movie that I thought, oh boy, you know, I don't know. We'll get into it. <laughs> Cause I'm, I'm just, I'm doing the mental math of Frankie's calculations and we're getting down to the wire. <laughs> oh, so you think there's a disagreement coming? Okay, good. good. <laughs> there might be, yeah. yeah. The numbers are starting to diverge here, at least the rankings. <laughs> I'm talking about 2000's Meet the Parents, which currently has an astounding 84% on Rotten Tomatoes. I milked a cat once. Greg is spending the weekend with his girlfriend's parents. I had no idea you could milk a cat. Oh, yeah, you can milk anything with nipples. I have nipples, Greg. Could you milk me? What could possibly go wrong? Jake's is strictly a house cat. You can't let him outside. <laughs> From the director of Austin Powers. You tried to milk him, didn't you, you sick son of a... Robert De Niro, Ben Stiller. You okay, sweetie? Yeah. Meet the Parents, rated PG-13, at theaters Friday, October 6th. This film was directed by Jay Roach with a screenplay by Jim Hertzfeld and John Hamburg. It's a story by Greg Galena and Mary Ruth Clark. Uh, I'll get into that in a second. It's triumph return of Ben Stiller, last seen in Something About Mary, triumph return of Robert De Niro, last seen not since the days of Cape Fear. It's triumph return of Owen Wilson, last seen in Armageddon. It's triumph return of James Rebhorn, who is greatly missed, last seen in Independence Day. Uh, it is based on Meet the Parents by Greg Galena and Mary Ruth Clark, which was an independent short, which is available on YouTube if you want to watch it. Oh, and wow. it's not very good. It was released October 6th, 2000, at a budget of $55 million. Oh, my God. $55 million for that, which is a lot of money for a comedy. But it made $330.4 million. This movie would tank today. It would flop. Yeah. It would be on VOD the next week. It would just, oh, my God. Idiot RN schleps his way through meeting his ladies' folks and finds out she and her entire family are toxic weirdos. Ben Stiller and Robert De Niro deliver stellar comedy performances <laughs> in a relatable and sometimes <laughs> sometimes overly zany comedy while their female co-stars do basically nothing. <laughs> Hit the divergence button, baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I loved it. Um, and, and let me tell you this. I had never seen it before. Holy shit. Okay. Yeah. I had seen it and I'm sitting there going, I know I've aged. I know I'm old now. Because all I'm the whole time I'm watching it, all I'm doing is thinking through the real world implications of this movie. 
Yeah. It's like Greg cannot think on his feet in a single instance. There's not a single instance in which he can think clearly on his feet. And no matter how awkward a first meeting is between your significant other and you or other life events, you could come up with half a dozen better examples of whatever the fuck than what this guy does. You talking about milk and cats or what? I'm talking about, I'm reading through a pregnancy magazine and right. Oh, it's a breast pump. And also like, it's a culture shift because it's like one of the big jokes in the movie is he's a male nurse. It's like, uh, okay. Right. Yeah. 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 That, that, that's, um, that's, that's, that's pretty much expired now. Although you yeah, know, there's still, I, I, I have a, I have a, uh, an in-law who like would still be hung up and it would be, you know, so you'd have to like frame it differently nowadays where he'd be yes. like, is this, he'd be the odd one out, you know? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, Pam puts Greg in exceedingly unfair circumstances. <laughs> I watched it with my wife and she was like, this fucking girlfriend is the worst. Yes. She's yeah. the worst. Your wife is hundred percent right. And here, because <laughs> the script makes it seem as if she doesn't know her family. Cause the only right. way she'd put this guy in these circumstances is if this, she had been adopted out and this was the first time she was meeting her biological parents. Yeah. You were raised by these people. And I guess you could make the argument of this is her family culture. And so maybe she's not as aware of how it would feel to outsiders, but the script kind of wants to have it both ways to where she's, she's, she kind of knows it's unfair and, but she still kind of sides with the family and she also sets him up to fail. And it's like, what the, it, it's to your point, even though you were positive with the movie, I think the women and Pam in particular is a horrifically underwritten character. Yeah. And she's a linchpin character to make sense of because she is the literally the linchpin between these two worlds. She's her the world in Chicago. Yeah. yeah. And her world back home. And I, it's just it's just it's just the Ben Stiller show as he's flying blindly, stupidly through one fuck up after another. And I'm like. The only <laughs> engaging thing about this movie for me is I'm going, OK. This movie is like somewhere between an old era studio comedy and like the a precursor to like the cringe comedy that we would start to get in the early 2000s, like The Office and stuff like that. Yep. And I'm like, this is this is that middle ground. Like it still feels like it's not a Jim Carrey movie. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But it's also not The Office, but it's somewhere in between. You know, it's so funny you say that. I was going to make that exact same point about like this. Um, this movie doesn't rely entirely on the, the, I mean, of course the whole movie is about fumbling and yet it doesn't go full office, um, or yeah. full, full awkward, full cringe, full Larry David, you know, at every turn. Um, yeah, I, I, I hand wave most of your critiques, <laughs> <laughs> all of which uh, are valid enough. <laughs> Under the, the, the guise of it's a studio comedy. So mm. if, if we, um, I think if we hit the ground running, if the whole movie was effectively like the second half, then I'd have like a real issue. But I, I think that there is a, an impeccable first act here. Um, it, it, every single plot thread, it, it like, you know, if you just talked about like pure comedy screenwriting, 
um, uh, it's done economically and every plot thread is set up and well conserved and used ultimately in the film. And they converge and I, I think in reasonably intelligent ways. I love even just like, okay, I'm going to do this proposal and it's going to be entirely outside of, uh, of, of, you know, her dad and her family situation, which I don't really know having the kid, you know, so there's a visual thing with the kids. Of course, if, if she was a more developed character, like her, her teaching would matter more to the plot or something. Yes. But, I, I, <laughs> but I, I, I like that if the proposal hadn't gotten a little fucked up, the whole movie doesn't happen. So there's kind of, you know, it like, yeah, yeah. I, I, I like that she suggests like, oh yeah, there's kind of a better way to do this. Oh, okay. I'll go do that. I think that Ben Stiller, while he is written to make unreasonable mistakes, I think that they're stepped up over time. I, cause I actually think his, his, um, his character's performance, not his performance, his character's performance with the family is halfway decent in like, you're empathizing quite a bit with him. We're like, well, that joke wasn't that unfunny or that's maybe something I would say to somebody I had just met, but also like, ma- you know, making him totally flat footed. I think it's genius to just be like, yeah, you don't even have your own clothes to not have your own clothes is like, yeah, you're going to fuck up everything. If you don't have your, your bag that has what you need, like you've, you've been, uh, disadvantaged in a really unfair way. And the, the guy that you need to impress is giving you zero grace. Um, and like, you need a little grace right from the start. Cause you don't have your clothes. I love, I think that, um, the, you know, cause this movie ranges from relatable to unrelatable. Mm-hmm. And actually I think, I think that that's kind of where a lot of its magic is because to make it a kind of a broad studio comedy, you, you, you get to the zany parts. And I do think that there's parts that are a little overly zany, but, um, like where it doesn't, it doesn't quite fit, but I th- like the relatable stuff, you know, when uh, we've all, at least I have, yeah. Like you show up to like your in-laws like breakfast and they're all put together and you're kind of the fucked up one. <laughs> you're the one that's in PJ still. And, and somehow when they make a joke, it lands with everybody. When you make a joke, it never lands. Okay. You know? Right. Okay. Right there. That scene is, we could dissect that scene. That scene is perfectly what I'm trying to get at. Right. Yep. Yep. Pam's like, oh, I thought you'd want to sleep in. She's so keen on him making yeah. a good impression. There's yeah. no chance she doesn't wake his ass up early and make sure he's dressed and down at that table early because she knows that would impress her father, right? Uh, well, I'll, 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 I'll say one thing. She doesn't know that he's planning on a proposal. I'm no, just saying. But she knows that her dad is a stickler because he's he's yeah. he got their, the, the whole family's day fucking plan. And he's like, if you're not five minutes early, you're 10 minutes late. Yeah, and she's she knows it about her dad. Yeah. But what does work about that scene is what you, the second part you brought up, which is that that dynamic of somebody makes a joke and it lands and you make the, a similar joke and nobody gives you anything. That is, I think, where, okay, if there was more of that and, and, and less of Pam's character has no goddamn common sense about her own father, but it's like despite her attempts to set Greg up for success – it gets fucked up anyways. Right. That to me is a, is a better plot mechanism than just, she just like, what, you know, you got to really impress my dad and you know, but I'm not going to help you. <laughs> I, I haven't seen the the sequels. Do, do they sort out this issue with Pam? No, in this, she's yeah. less of a character in the second one. And it almost not exists in the third one. And I know that because I revisited the entire trilogy after watching this. I was like, fuck, wow. I got to watch all of this shit to see. <laughs> and I was like, no, the best part of the next movie is, is Dustin Hoffman and Barbara Streisand. 
And then you talk about zany, it goes full zany, yeah. but it's Dustin Hoffman. So you're like, eh, he can do it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> De, De, De Niro is, is obviously nailing it here. I think, you know, it, like you, you could imagine a De Niro performance where he says yes. And it, he's not fully committed to what yes. he's supposed to be doing. In the oh film. no, he's on board here for sure. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. So that work, you know, so to, to the extent that his character is, saying or asking for things that don't quite make sense. Like it, it, he, he papers over that, I think with the performance, but I really do think Ben Stiller's performance, you know, cause he, he's able to kind of ride this line between like that. He's, a, he's an embarrassment, but also he's kind of like a sexy, uh, uh, you know, charming guy. And yeah. so, so, you know, he can play both. And I, I actually think that this is like Owen Wilson really shined in this. Yes. I love, yes, I agree. I, I love the whole like, oh, you're so instead of criticizing him for uh, for nursing, he's like, oh, you must be investing in biotech. <laughs> I, yeah, right. I, I thought that all worked really well. But yeah, I look, it, it's um, it's got the kinds of problems you might expect from a studio comedy. But but I th- oh, here's a thought, because you, you made the point about um, this movie would never make any money today. And, and you're right. If that movie had been a Thanksgiving movie or a Christmas movie at the time. I, I, I think it would be even more of a classic today than it is. Now, everybody would watch the movie about how hard it is to visit family. At, they would watch it every fucking year. It would become Home Alone. I really think that. I would agree. Yeah, I would agree with you. Uh, pro tip in real life, folks, don't propose to your fiance at her sister's wedding. Right? Don't. Or your girlfriend. Don't propose to anybody during significant life events for them or their family. Propose on a random fucking Tuesday. Don't propose on Christmas. Don't propose on Thanksgiving. Don't, 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 don't do that. Just like pick a fucking Tuesday. Don't do that. Don't, don't propose to them on their graduation. Just don't do it. I come from kind of like the Ebert school of co- like thinking about comedies in the sense of like, how much did the movie make me laugh? Cause I, at the end of the day, it's not about the plot. It's not even about the writing. It's like, did, did the movie make you laugh? If it made you laugh, then it's a success because it's a comedy. If it didn't make you laugh, the two biggest laughs for me, <laughs> which maybe is my sensibility as a person is James Rebhorn trying to strangle that cat. <laughs> that is great. And he's like, Jesse, you <laughs> son of a bitch. <laughs> he's trying to get the cat. <laughs> isn't he, isn't he, isn't the character wasted in that scene too? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, just him breaking into that room, and the whole room is trashed, and like, like and him, try, him, he plays it so seriously, yeah, yeah, as if he really wants to strangle a member of the family, and they don't, they don't even address the. Uh, it's a cat, obviously, but it's just like he, it's so perfect. I got the biggest laugh. My second biggest laugh is just how vacant the stare is of the flight attendant, the the gate uh, person. When it's all, it's almost like a John Hughes reveal where it's kind of close ups and it's shot reverse shot of close ups, and then we get the wide shot and it's there's nobody in the terminal and there's just yeah. a guy vacuuming, yeah. and then she's he's right in front of her and she's just like big eyed and just like staring in every direction but his, you know, and then waits all of like three seconds and then finally lets him on as if he hadn't been standing there the whole time. <laughs> I thought that just, was funny. just the, the, the visual comedy of like, yes, like we, we have three, sh- we're covering the scene with three shots. And when we choose to cut to the wide, the close, the, re- yeah, 
it, it works. Yeah, it works. It was classic comedy, and her performance is great because there's just nothing fucking there. Like she's, and the thing is, like that we talk about relatable. We've all had it's an exaggeration, but we've all had an airport experience where it's like they're just completely being unreasonable. Yeah, and and it's just it's just bringing out how arbitrary so many of these rules are. Right. Um, you know, yeah, like, uh, you couldn't know. do bomb, bomb, bomb on a plane. Uh, this is definitely a pre nine eleven movie. It couldn't be your climax of your family comedy. What <laughs> one year later? One yeah. year later. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. All right. Any other thoughts about Meet the Parents? Since you loved it. Well, they, they since I loved it so very much. Uh, they, 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 it does get wrapped up awfully quick. I mean, Ben Stiller like destroys the urn. He burns down the house. <laughs> <laughs> he abuses animals yeah. and, then, and then there's a quick lie detector test and we get past it, you know, so <clears throat> not a strong ending, but a very strong opening. And, and, and I think, a, I think a really good broad comedy. That's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he lets the cat loose. Yeah. He, what did you say? He, he, he we molested an animal. What'd you say? He abused an animal. Yeah. Abused. Molest. I'll, I'll go with molest. <laughs> yeah. It's so horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they think he's, they think he's like a, uh, the, 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 the retrograde aspect of this, I guess you could kind of believe it with De Niro's character is just how they treat marijuana as if it's crack cocaine. Just like, oh yeah, yeah that yeah. would work today <laughs> no. nearly as much. Although again, it, it would be funny if you still had this, it would put him as the odd man out. Like there'd be this one character who still thinks that marijuana is crack cocaine. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's the thing is you'd have to re almost reverse the movie now. Yeah. To where like the De Niro character, like you said, would be the one like nothing's landing and all of like the right. woke family isn't like, like he's just not jiving with people. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. But I don't think you could make a funny movie about a conservative uncle going to Thanksgiving and him be the sympathetic character. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Well, yeah, you could. You could probably do the all in the family dynamic of of you'd have to sort of make the Ben Stiller and the Archie Bunker. You know, um, yeah. You know, just polar opposites and kind of caricatures of both of their sides. So, if because if you wanted to keep it somewhat broad and not piss. 50% of the country off, you know, sort of like jab at both of them, but you would, yeah. you would, fail, you would fail at that task. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here's how you have to do it. And you'd still fucking fail. <laughs> That's right. Uh, if you had to give this a score out of 10, what would you give it? And where's it ranked for you? Eight out of 10. It was my favorite of the bunch. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I, I would meet these parents. So being added to the guest list is meet the parents. Thanks to Frankie. It's not going to make it to my short list. Obviously, I give it a six out of 10. It comes in as my number three, which means I think we're going to agree on our final film. Yeah. What a trip. I'm talking about <laughs> what a piece how of the shit. Grinch stole Christmas, <laughs> which currently yeah. has a 49% on Rotten Tomatoes. This holiday season. Christmas. Experience the movie that's captured the hearts of audiences around the world. Jim Carrey is the Grinch. There'll be no sad faces on Christmas. Rated PG. Now playing. This film was directed by Ron Howard. It was written by Jeffrey Price, Peter S. Seaman. Triumph Return of Anthony Hopkins, last seen in the MCU. Triumph Return of Mindy Sterling, last seen in Austin Powers. Triumph Return of Vern Troyer, last seen in Austin Powers. Triumph Return of Bryce Dallas Howard, last seen in Twilight. 
one of those sequels. Triumph Return of Jim Carrey, last seen in Liar Liar, and it's the triumphant return of Deep Roy, last seen in Going Bananas. This film, of course, is based on Dr. Seuss's How the Grid Stole Christmas. It was released November 17th, 2000, and a budget of $123 million. It made $345.1 million. And as a teen in the new millennium, I swore to myself and all my movie nerd friends, I'd never fucking see this movie. And I broke my one rule, the vow I made to my childhood self by sitting here to talk about it with Frankie for my listeners. Psychopath monsters seek Yuletide revenge against the toxic town that traumatized him at Christmas. Jim Carrey fights through miles of makeup to express emotion and comes out victorious. But to do it, he has to deliver a, a performance that would make Daffy, Daffy Duck and Urkel blush. Oh, okay. This is the first time I've seen this movie. I put it up on the internet on Twitter at Binge Movies and said, I'm watching this movie. And it was about a 50-50 split from film Twitter. Half of film Twitter is like, this is the worst movie I've ever seen in my entire life, which is what film Twitter says about a lot of movies. The other half said, uh, I love this movie. It is now a family staple. I have so much nostalgia for it. A younger version of me in a different season of this show would be like, fuck you, you're wrong. This movie sucks. The older I get, the more I realize the things that we are nostalgic for are not the things themselves. They are the things that they remind us of. As these movies remind you of the love of your life, your wife, who you've had, you know, 25 years almost of a relationship with, and children and all this stuff. You're going to maybe grade some of these movies a little less harshly because there's a connotation there. Totally. Uh, the movies remind us of the people who are in our life and they remind us of the people who used to be in our life. And if there's a Christmas movie and maybe our grandparents aren't around anymore, or maybe our parents as we get up there in age, uh, maybe siblings, you know, things we've lost, people we've lost. It's hard for me to then be like, yeah, but there's too many Dutch angles in this movie. Your childhood is wrong. Your experience is wrong. Stop loving things that I don't like. That being said, <laughs> is Ron Howard trying to be Tim Burton? Or did Tim Burton see this movie and be like, that's what the last half of my career is going to be. For some reason, Ron Howard said, oh, that would be really fun. That would be like a big budget bit. You know, it would be a like a pleasure to adapt as such a classic. And for some reason he thought, and the way to do it is to make it a live action cartoon. So you can sort of be like, oh yeah, okay. Cause it's a Chuck Jones animated film and stuff. Yep. And, and then he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, <clears throat> you know, who's Daffy Duck? Jim Carrey. <clears throat> and then, you know, before long, you're like, wait, why is the Grinch like, like a, like a, this fucking crazy. Like, right. you know, and, and so for me, the perspective that I, I think I can bring to it is there is a 2018 one directed by Scott Mosier of all people, um, you know, from Illumination Studios. My daughter loves it. We've seen it a bunch of times. So I've had a lot of time to think about how they adapted the, you know, we read the book at, you know, around Christmas time too. And we watch the film. So I've always wondered like, what would it take to adapt a feature length version of the story? And I, I had not seen this from beginning to end until now. Also, thanks to you. <laughs> God bless. And, uh, and, and, and so like, if, if you were to, if you hadn't seen the feature length adaptations, you, anybody would start with the same problems. You would start with, well, 
the the villain is also the protagonist that works in a 15 minute cartoon. So you're like, so what do I do there? Um, we're going to need some supporting characters. And clearly the Cindy Lou who character is, you know, should, should uh, be prominent in some way. And then the other question is like, when does the, the, the Christmas stealing take place narratively? And, and if it's, um, you know, is it, is it in the second act? And so then there's like a lot of falling action after it, or do we have this whole other movie? <laughs> and then the third act is uh, uh, stealing Christmas. And for some reason, Ron Howard went with that. Now here, here's uh, an observation I was able to make by seeing both films in this adaptation. The Grinch is manic. So they're both, they, 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 you know, you have to, when, if you're going to do a feature, you're going to have to explain why is he such a fucking Grinch? Um, and it's going to, because he's your protagonist, it's going to have to be a sympathetic reason. Yep. In, in, in the 2018 one, it was because he was like an orphan around Christmas time. He didn't have a family. So he's depressed. And to this day, he's like an overeating, self secluding, doesn't really like people kind of antisocial. And in, like in this one, he actually still does live in Whoville. So like he is a known quantity. He's not like just some monster. Like he goes shopping. He just fucking hates shopping it, it, in the 2018 one. He, you know, like people sing Christmas carols at him and he's like, Ugh, like, leave me alone. You know, so actually it's a, it's a little bit relatable. Like if you ever, you know, if you feel like over, uh, over Christmas, but he's depressed. That's the key. And he's manic in this. He's like, he snapped <laughs> and yeah. he's not necessarily like, I, I, I don't get a lot of, evil from him in this i get a lot of like the riddler i guess i don't know <laughs> <laughs> the prosthetics here are deeply disturbing and yeah, i don't mean that why did they make that decision with with, with the the who villains like why that's what i mean i don't mean the grinch no yeah i mean right. the who villains the who folk are fucking Twilight Zone. I have Beauty and the Eye of the Beholder terrifying. Like, something's and you wrong can tell they face. knew it because they didn't make Cindy Lou Who have all that makeup on her face because it would have made her deeply unsympathetic. Yes. Yeah. Um, also, the characterization of the town is they're horrible. They're horrible people. And they've Christmas is all about materialism for it and they so need to learn a lesson it. too. Yeah. And yeah. It doesn't work. Ironically, this is the most handsome Clint Howard has ever looked in a film. <laughs> That's true, actually. I thought I, the like, same thing. When they panned across and it's like, oh God, Jeffrey Tambor looks like a monster. All these character actors are like monsters. And then it gets to like Clint Howard. I was like, he looks kind of handsome. <laughs> That's the most normal he's ever looked. That's true. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I have the who's are terrible, terribly cruel. It'd be one thing if like they were a little off putting or something. They're terribly yeah. cruel. Like yes. this is not a great, this is a town that needs saving actually. Well, I guess that's kind of how they set it up. They're like Cindy Lou who is going to kind of heal everybody because actually we're all dysfunctional and you know, from the Grinch on down, which I, I don't think that's how you want to tell your Grinch story. No, I think the idea is that it's going to like engender more conflict or something or more resolution and, and pat out, pat out the story, but right. it doesn't work because then there's no contrast. There's no contrast between the town and the Grinch because the town is doesn't hasn't embraced the true spirit of Christmas. Right. And even in the face of adversity, they continue to embrace the true spirit of Christmas and generosity. And that's what transforms his heart, which is basically the book. It's, Oh no, they're horribly materialistic, actively cruel, vindictive towards each other. They're, they're just, they're all fuckos and they all need to learn the big lesson because of this annoying little girl. And it just, yeah, does, it stinks. It doesn't work. Uh, the Grinch being raised by elderly lesbian swingers is an interesting choice. And I'm like, why did we make 
Why do, why do we have a flashback at a key party? <laughs> a key party? They need they needed yeah, <clears throat> they probably had a contractual runtime, Jason. <laughs> but why would you like oh, they found baby Grinch in the midst of an orgy. They were getting ready to have a, a partner swap. I, I'm not joking. That is a scene in this movie where they're they're having a key party and the two lesbians are like, well, we'll raise him. I thought they were sisters. They weren't sisters. I don't think true? they're sisters, buddy. Sisters <laughs> at a key party is a different <laughs> level of depravity. Who are the Grinch's adopted? <laughs> Who are they exactly? Mindy, uh, Clarinella who one of the Grinch's adopted mothers from childhood and Rose who yeah you might be right <laughs> <laughs> that, and then that, again no, I'm right I'm right for one okay uh, if, the, it, the Grinch it, arrived it, in Whoville as a baby and was adopted by two elderly sisters okay all right the key party is still real though <laughs> okay fine fair enough D don't you remember that scene where they're, all, they're having a Christmas party everybody's putting their keys in a bowl yeah yeah it's a yeah. key party <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So the sisters having to keep her. I don't have anything against the Grinch being raised by lesbians. I just thought it was a weird choice for to make them swingers. What about now incest, incest lesbians? Yeah. Now they're sister swingers, which is, which is weird. Um, rest in peace to this gentleman. But Josh Ryan Evans as a child Grinch is nightmare fuel. Oh, it's so weird. Now, do you remember the daytime soap passions that he was a star of? Yes, of course. I would hold the hand of the one who and it was like a witch, and he was like the witch's sidekick, and he would do like magic on this town. Uh, oh my God, he died two years later. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's roughly our age, I think, and he yeah. obviously died from complications due to his illness. But, uh, terrible. yeah, uh, he was the star of Passions. Insert Passions clip here. Like, what the hell is this? Because it was like the daffiest yeah. soap opera. It was like they knew what they were making. They're like, we're making trash. And so, <laughs> and we're gonna have supernatural elements and like resurrections and like just it was it. just absolutely bonkers on purpose. Yes. And uh it was almost parody, but but played straight. It was very strange. And it was on for a while, and he was like a big star in that. And I knew he was in this movie. I didn't know he'd be playing a a really evil child Grinch. And to your point, like, okay, they're trying to make him a sympathetic, sympathetic character. But when we go back to him as a child, he is a psychopath. Yeah. He's like drawing Santa Claus on fire and shit yeah. like that. And it's like, that's before he's been traumatized. <laughs> so he was always crazy. It was, his it, instinct. Been, it was his instinct to at least ruin Christmas a little. Yes. So it undercuts this, like, oh, well, this horrible thing happened to him, which is just basically like, the girl he liked didn't like him and he was carried like at a, at seven years old. I, I don't know. Here's what I'm saying on a script level and a story level. This movie's a fucking disaster. He's it's flying into, he's flying into Mar Martha's boobs and stuff. Like there's like sexual harassment going on. Oh, sexual assault, I should say. Jim Carrey is somehow the best part of this movie. Despite the fact that this may be him at his most shrill. And that yeah. says something. Right, right. Yeah, because relative to what you're watching otherwise, if, if, if it did feel to me like they were, you know, they had their, the whole movie is very soundstagey, like highly yes. soundstagey. It really yes. feels like I'm watching like Grinch on Ice or, yeah. And 
it felt like they had, you know, especially during like the, the uh, stealing of Christmas and you're a meme when Mr. Grinch, they needed to fill time with like uh, isolated visual gags. And it kind of felt like they just set up camera and were like, all right, Jim, what do you think the next one could be? Yep. And, and he, it's, you know, he's pretty damn inventive. Um, he figures out, you know, and he, he of course has that big fupa and stuff and that like, he can have fun with that. So, but yeah, the way it's shot here, like the canted angle thing, it, it, it gives me like meet the feebles vibes. It, it's got kind of like, <laughs> a, like 90s, uh, like Peter Jackson, like grotesque, yeah. film, you know, it is yeah. grotesque, but it's, it's also grotesque. like got gauzy and blur all over it. And so you're just like, yeah, it's like a, like a little bit like a Christmas story, but that makes sense because it's a recollection of an older man. And so having a little blur on the film makes sense, but, it, but this is, yeah, this is, it's almost shot like a horror movie. You're exactly right. Like a, <laughs> Like a '90s horror movie, a decade late, but it's a big, big, massive budget comedy Christmas film. It's everything about this is like cattywampus. It's just like disturbed. It's a yeah. It's like several things had to go wrong here on every conceivable level. With another schmaltzy James Horner score. <laughs> yes, yes, and but this time it's. Oof. When they bring, that little girl breaks out that Faith Hill song, I'm like, oh, no. Oh, yeah, she can't fucking sing. She cannot sing. Oh, no. Sing. Yeah. <laughs> it been, yeah I, I don't know how you leave a thing like that in a film. And it's not like, well, that's from the special that everybody knows and watches right. every year. Right. No, that's an original song. Yeah. Dub it or cut it. Get rid of it. Where are you, Christmas? Oh, it's it's Christmas. Local elementary school Christmas pageant level singing. Big Nothing against that young lady, but, and, um, she's also very annoying. I'm sorry. Her performance is bad. She's annoying. Yeah. It's hard to knock kids, but she sucks. And I give it a four out of 10. It's the worst of the week. This movie sucks. I'm sorry. I don't mean to trample. If you love this movie, God, I'm not telling you you're wrong. Cause that's your experience. I'm just telling you that as a grown man, watch it for the first time, 20 some years later, it just nothing about it worked. Nothing. I, I agree. I, I will be sticking with the 2018 version, which is a pretty, a pretty good adaptation. The Benedict Cumberbatch one, I gave it a four out of 10. The worst one, you know, the, the biggest surprise of all, because I always wondered like, what, how did they pad out that runtime? The majority of the movie is him winning that award. Like that's the major, like it, it, yep. it's, it's like how the Grinch st got a, an award should have been the title of the film. <laughs> All right, Frankie, it's time for a recap. Coming in dead last for me is How the Grinch Stole Christmas, which has a 4 out of 10, according to me. Coming in number 4 is What Lies Beneath, which you give a 5 out of 10. Coming in number 3, Meet the Parents, give it a 6 out of 10. Number 2 is X-Men with a 6.5 out of 10. And number 1, surprising myself and the whole world, The Perfect Storm, which gives a 7.5 out of 10. What is your recap? So we, we just disagree. Perfect Storm and Meet the Parents are swapped. And our okay. score, our scores are pretty darn similar. So how the Grinch stole Christmas at number five, four out of 10, what lies beneath at number four, four at also four out of 10, but a slightly higher four out of 10, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the perfect storm, seven, seven out of 10 X-Men, seven out of 10 and meet the parents eight whopping numbers out of 10. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I, it, it worked on me, man. They should, it, uh, my only complaint. Make it be set at Christmas time, please. 
All right, our very next episode, we'll be ranking the top five highest grossing films of 2000, which includes Dinosaur, What Women Want, Castaway, Gladiator, and Mission Impossible 2. Well, you've now been through the ringer of binge movies for the first time. You've discovered that it's a bizarre, fascinating, and mind-bending experience. Frankie, thanks for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, Where can the fine listeners at home find you, support you? Where are the like buttons for them to smash? Where are the subscribe buttons for them to click? Where are the bell buttons for them to push so they get notifications? All that jazz. Yeah, the the best way to keep up with me if you enjoy listening to me talk about movies uh, or if you want to watch me cook mac and cheese or you want to watch our catalog of, of honestly thousands of videos and and also of several feature films, uh, subscribe to Red Cow Entertainment on YouTube uh, and subscribe to Red Cow Arcade for all the podcast content. And of course, we have a store where you can buy our movies and stuff at redcowentertainment.com slash store. Ladies and gentlemen, until next time, binge on. <laughs>